I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of Ephesians as we continue in that study this morning. Uh, the book of Ephesians, we go back to this book that uh, perhaps we've taken a little bit of a break from when I went to uh, a mission uh, trip and it's... Uh, High time we uh, return to this book. The book of Ephesians, we've been looking at uh, chapter 5. Being an imitator of God, it was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. And he was the one who had founded this church. He stayed for three years at the church at Ephesus. And he began this book by establishing to them who they were in Christ. And second part of uh, the book of Ephesians here in chapter 4, 5, and 6, how they are to behave in light of who they were. And they were called, they were people who were saved by the blood of Christ as precious people, as Christians are. And here in chapter 5, we read from verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Our Father, here you lay out for us the model to follow, and that model is you. So, Father, as we learn, conform our lives and conform our minds to yours, that we might be imitators of you. May you open our eyes that we might see once again great and mighty things which we do not yet know. In Jesus' precious name, amen. When I was in Africa, in Uganda, one of the villages that I went to, went to without the team, I was in this area where everyone was an African besides me. I was the only fair-skinned person there and when I got out and there were all of these children that were part of the villages that came out of the huts. And of course, I I didn't think they had very many visitors. It was a little bit more remote and so they were all curious and they all gathered around and they all were smiling and they would run up and they would touch me and this lady would uh, laugh and she would say they're trying to touch you to see if any of the white can come off of you onto them. <laughs> they, would, they would smile and what they would do is they would all gather around just like you see on TV. And then I decided I wanted to say hi. So I said, hello, hello. And just like little parrots, they all began to say, hello, 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 hello. Every time they would see me, there'd be this chorus of hellos. And I'd, they'd say it over and over and over again. They were copying what I had 
said to them, and you know one of the things we do inherently as people is that we copy others. From the time we're born, we're copycats. We copy, we imitate parents and Not only do children copy their parents, but adults copy others as well. Copy and they learn how how manners are and how to set a table, the advice they give, the way they live, the way they talk, etc. And even in the responding to life's stresses, we copy other people. Oftentimes we learn things, we pick up things from our parents. Whether they're good or bad habits, we pick them up as children. We copy our parents. If our parents uh, have a bad temper, oftentimes we grow up to respond to life with that. If we are, if our parents are perhaps spenders, perhaps we might not be as so, so tight with funds and we also spend. Or if they're critical or controlling, we oftentimes pick up those habits. Whether we like them or not, we copy. In Proverbs 22 tells us don't associate with a person given to anger or with a hot-tempered man it says or you will learn his ways in other words we pick up things from others hang around with somebody who responds to life in a certain way the chances of you responding in the same way are much the same There's a higher percentage of children who grow up underneath parents who drink to make their problems seem less serious. Well, the chances of that child growing up to drink are also higher. It doesn't happen in all cases, but in many cases it does. Because we all follow someone else. We all copy others and we pick up habits. We pick up traits. When you're a child, you pick up from other children. And when you're an adult, you might pick it up from the television or from other media or whatever it might be. Here God gives to us a model to follow. And that model is himself. And his command is found in first, verse 1. It says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what it says. The word imitators comes from a Greek word, mementes, from which we get the word mimic or a mime, a person who copies exactly how a person is acting. And it follows what Paul has said in verse 32 about us needing to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving of one another, just as God and Christ has forgiven us. And we are to be like that because God is like that. God is like that. And we are to copy God just as children copy their parents. Many times, though, I've heard people perhaps even go to, unfortunately, though, blaming their parents or using their parents as an excuse for the way they are. Remember years ago, someone in their midlife said to me that they realize they're spoiled all because of their parents. Their parents didn't discipline them enough when they were young children. But even though we might understand that the habits we have were picked up when we were younger, our parents are never to be the blame of that because we have a choice. We can imitate God. We can imitate God and we're commanded to be followers of God, to imitate God. Many years ago, there was a little bracelet that was very popular and sometimes it's still popular among some with a little initial WWJD. What would Jesus do? And the idea behind that is that 
You put yourself in a situation and you ask yourself, what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? Now, I realize some people might say, well, Jesus would never be in those shoes because you've gotten yourself into a predicament. But yet, the question is still pertinent. What would Jesus do if he were in my place? How would Jesus think? How would Jesus act? How would he respond? What would be the godly way for me to think and what attitude would God have? And so, what would be a godly way to do and act and behave? And that is how we are to be as well. We are to be imitators of God. And Paul lays out for us exactly what we're to do in verse 2. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in love, it says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us. Not only are we, we like in verse 32, to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, but we're to walk in love. And those of you who have been here for a while already know there are four different words that are used for love in the Bible that are describing different types of love. There's the type of love that is the phileo type of love or brotherly love between brothers or friends. That's what it means. The city of friendship or brotherly love is Philadelphia, from which we get that word. There's a second word that is storge, a word that is used in the Bible to describe the love between uh, brothers and sisters or parents and their children, a familial type of love, a family love. Then there is eros, which is the type of romantic love that is often touted by the world, a kind of romance that occurs between two people. And then there is agape love, which is a love that is here. The love that is commanded between the husband and a wife, the command that is given to us that is said we are to love one another, that is an unconditional love, a love of choice, a love that is not dependent upon feelings. That is agape love. And that is a love by which Jesus loved us. In John 3.16, it is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And it was that type of love that chose to love us. And God continues to love you and I despite what we do, despite our behavior as children, as his own children. He continues to love us despite our bad attitudes, our bad habits, etc., And Romans 8 tells us that nothing in the world could ever separate you from the love of God. From the love of God. Many of you know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. But there are fewer perhaps that know 1 John 3.16, which says, We know love by this. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, because Christ loved us and gave his life for us, we too, in our expression of love to one another, we lay down our own lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We lay down our own lives for the sake of others. That is how we know if we love others. Do we do that? You see, this type of love that Paul and God are calling us to is a life of self-sacrifice. It is of selfless service 
to others. It is a giving of our lives, a willingness to inconvenience ourselves. It is a willingness to tolerate other people, as it says in chapter 4, that we put up with them. It is a willingness to forgive their irritating personalities or their offenses against us. It is the willingness to give generously, to treat kindly, even though they may not treat us kindly. It is the willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of Christ and not harbor things in our own heart. That is the type of love. That is the type of love that asks the question, what can I do? Despite how they act towards me or despite how they treat me, what can I do to build them up? Even if they have nothing that they can give back to me. That is what pure and faultless religion is, James says, right? To minister to orphans and widows. In other words, those that may not ever have the opportunity to return something back to us. Yet we love and sacrifice for them. The world offers a type of love that asks the question, what can I get back if I love them? And love that is here, it's expressed in verse 2, is a demonstrated love. Is a demonstrated love that thinks about what? What is the best thing for their good? That is a true type of love. And it's a love that is repeated, as the verbs say. Love that doesn't say, well, I've done that once or I've tried that and I won't do that again because what? I'm tired of that? No, it is a love that continues to express itself to those that maybe are difficult to love. And so we ask ourselves, do we love other people? Do we want to serve other people? Do we want to give ourselves for the sake of someone else? Because that is imitating God. That is imitating God. And that's the wonderful thing about a church. If a church loves one another, if the people in a church love one another and they sacrifice for one another, and if everyone does that, and they're not there seeking, well, how do I feel about this? Or how am I going to do? And they're not self-focused, but they're others-focused. Then everyone will be blessed. Then everyone will be encouraged. Because as you encourage others, others will encourage you. And you're to do that because it is a testimony to the world and it is a testimony that, that we are children of God. We imitate God in so doing. And so Paul says, imitate God, walk in love, and don't do it like this. And he says, gives us a warning in verse 3 to 6. Walk away from immorality or impurity. Walk away from immorality or impurity. It says in verse 3, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The word for immorality is the word pornea, from which we get the word pornography. And it is the word that refers to all sexual sin. And the word for impurity is another word that is more general, referring to anything that is filthy or unclean. And it was used in the New Testament, the second word for impurity by Jesus, referring to the decaying bones of a body in a tomb. But all of the other times that it is used, it is used in conjunction with sexual sin. 
And it refers to these things, everything from immoral thoughts and passions, immoral ideas or unclean fantasies or any other form of sexual corruption. And greed is listed here. And immorality and impurity, you see, are a form of selfish greed in the sexual realm. And when people hear a list like this, they think to themselves, well, you know what, I'm not, I'm not involved in anything awful like trafficking children or exploitation or I'm not involved in adultery or whatever. But it's a broad term, though, that encompasses many things that are impure, from pornography to fantasies to covetous types of greed. And this is why many things in this world and even some Christian materials may be improper. In fact, the text says, when you look at the text, it says, must not even be named among you. Must not even be named among you. There's not even to be the association of it with you. Anything immoral, it's not even to be among you because it's not proper among the saints. And the word saints is, 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 is just a, a literal term that means holy ones. Holy ones, among holy people, they're not to be anything that is remotely named among anything that has to do with this. And yet Christians today, they, they seem to like to go near the, near the line which it crosses the border. I remember attending this breakfast not long ago. It was in our local area when the speaker was the founder of what they call Triple X Church. A church that targets the pornographic industry. And so what they do is they go around, follow the pornographic industry, and they put out this, this booth within the, within the showroom itself. And they, they go and try and reach out in that sense. And I'm not against reaching out to those who are in need. I mean, after all, the Lord reached out to those who were adulterers and all sorts of walks of life. But to be in the arena by which they are practicing what they're practicing and promoting what they're promoting, certainly is an arena by which the leaders would have very difficult, very difficult time protecting their own purity, not to mention their association with the industry itself by being in the showrooms of all of these things. The text itself says, no filthiness, which is a word meaning general obscenity. And that is there in verse 4. It says there is to be no silly talk by which it means low obscenity and would come perhaps from one who is drunk, the things that a person who is drunk would say. And those two words have to do with basically dirty speech. And then there is coarse jesting, which refers to the witty comebacks that are the obscene ones or suggestive. And it's often dirty or off-color jokes. You see, this, these types of things aren't to be even associated with the Christian Yet Christians engage in telling of jokes, perhaps that are off color, laughing at immoral things, being entertained by impurity and even finding this type of thing tolerable. But nothing like that has to do with imitating God. It's not proper at all for a child of God. And these are the types of things you find on primetime sitcoms or the material you find in adult cartoons the obscene jokes, the off-colored jokes, daytime talk shows or soap operas, many themes of many movies or things that are full of foul language and suggestive innuendos, generally sleazy type of things. 
And people think that it's okay to be associated with these things. It has nothing to do with resonating with the holiness of God and being a saint, which means a whole one who is holy. An imitator of God is not to have these things in their life. And the sad part about it, though, is that some Christians feel that not only is it okay to be this way, some Christians these days believe that you need to be this way if you're going to reach and to be able to reach a, a morally decadent culture. That you have to lower and be uh, very familiar with the lowest common denominator. And what they do is they bring in this idea of contextualization. Contextualization in which you have to be like the people in order to reach the people. And so sadly, as you know, in recent years, actually in the number of years of the church, it, there's always a new trend that is coming into the church, in the American church. You know, a decade or 15 years ago, it was the, the trend of uh, being uh, the, the signs and wonders movement. And then in the 90s, it was more so of the, uh, the seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly movement that was popular. And then, of course, there was the postmodern shift of, of all of that happening as a foundational philosophy that would come underneath all of that, infiltrating the thinking of individuals to think that there are a few, if no absolutes, and yet there are. One of the more recent trends that has occurred in the past few years in the American church is that people feel that they need to be able to relate to others by using crass language. And it has come into the pulpit where pastors will blatantly use locker room humor or sexual innuendo or profanity even from the pulpit or pornographic imagery or videos on stage. And mind you, these are not these small fringe churches out in the sticks. They may be orthodox gospel preaching churches and they're becoming popular. Why do I say that? Because the secular media has picked up on it. The seismic shift from being discretionary to popularizing off-color innuendo. Major magazines such as Time magazine published last year an article or the New York Times online an article in January tells of pastors who use profanity in the pulpit sermon titles that are so explicit about sex and off the cuff humor and language laughing at things that are not pure. I read on Fox News online just this past week an article published back in April about one church meeting in a public elementary school like this that sent out 25,000 flyers on a new preaching series on sex that was so offensive to the community they complained to the school district. And the school district felt that it was not only, uh, not only over the line but it was inappropriate for an elementary school to be publicizing things like this and they're looking into revoking their, their lease or their rental opportunity in the school. And that's not the only church that has, uh, that has crossed the line into this area. All you need to do is go on Google and Google something like profanity from the pulpit or other things like that. And you'll find news articles, YouTube videos about pastors who are feeling as if, well, they've got to contextualize. So let's begin being like the culture in order to reach them. 
You'll find major news articles on churches that have become more tasteless in recent years, even advertising their series on huge billboards for all to see, paid for by the church. The appeal, you see, to the culture by appealing to those things that are not moral, something that the scriptures say not to do. It is not proper among the saints and it is not fitting, not even to be named among you, but rather giving of thanks. You notice even what it says in chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word, it says, proceed from your mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. The reason you see this type of speech is not to be named among God's people because it is indicative. It is indicative of someone's spiritual condition. If you look in your scriptures to the book of 1 Corinthians, just a, just a few books back. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul tells the church at Corinth a list of folks here that he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But what? He says here, the difference is this. Because God gives hope. And it says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. You see, we're not to have that type of life or have anything to do with that type of life. It doesn't mean that we don't reach them. But it means that we're not to be the people who, who not only are associated with the same activities, we're not to be for the people who are engaged in that same type of behavior. For it says in verse 5, even in chapter 5 of Ephesians, you know with certainty, certainty it says, no immoral or, immor or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. A person who is covetous is a person who is wishing and longing and craving what someone else has. It is, it is one of the commandments of God that says you should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So don't be a person who goes and looks at what other people see, say, have and say, boy, I wish I had that car. I wish I had that house. I wish I had somebody to mow my lawn. I wish I had whatever. But giving of thanks. Because the person who says, I wish I had this or whatever it might be, is self-centered and self-indulgent, desiring what others have, rather than the giving of thanks, being content with what one already has. You know, the thing about being able to go to a place like Mexico or being able to go to a, 
a place in the world like Africa or China or whatever. The majority world is what they call it, not necessarily the third world. They call it the majority world because the majority of the world lives in a different context than we do. And it is the blessing of being able to see, you know what, God has blessed me with so much and I have a responsibility to take what I have and to use it for people and to love my brothers and my sisters and to share what I have because, you know what, I have so much that God has blessed me with the opportunity to study the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, to use my gifts and abilities or whatever I have for the sake of others and not to be covetousness, not to be covetous. Because that is idolatry, it says. And so the scriptures tell us very clearly, be an imitator of God, a person who lives in self-sacrificial love, a person who is willing to give of themselves to serve the Lord, to serve the brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Christ gave himself up to us, and to flee and not to be a part Of anything that has to do with impurity or immorality or filthiness or coarse jesting or silly talk. All of those things aren't to be a part of one's life because those are part of our former life. So we ask ourselves this question. The things that I do, the way that I think, the things that I say, the attitudes I have, are they an imitation of God? Do they reflect the holiness of God? Are they proper for a person like myself who is a beloved child of God? Is it reflective of God? Or is it reflective of my own selfishness and sin? Let's pray. Our God, we sing of how great you are. How great is our God. Holy and majestic and worthy of all praise. And Father, may we be reminded that we are children, princes and princesses of the great King, holy ones who are called by your name. We pray, O God, that we might live a life that is upstanding and holy, one that is reflective of your Son, A life that is pure, a life that is clean, a vessel that is usable by you for your kingdom and your glory. And I pray, O Father, for all who are here, may you keep us pure and may you help us, O God, to see ourselves as children of you, servants of the Most High. In Jesus' name, amen.